0: can turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 4, Luke chapter 4, we'll look at verses 31 through 37 this afternoon. We've seen Jesus beginning his ministry, first of all, with this high praise upon his teaching and his, his authority, um, and that was followed by the rejection in his own hometown, where he left really under the threat of Um, murder. They wanted to kill him, but the Lord allowed him to escape. And so here we see the opposite. We see him going back to Galilee, specifically to Capernaum, where his authority is recognized. So before we read this passage, once again, let's turn to the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word We thank you for this opportunity to open it again and to hear from you. We pray that you would speak, that you would open our hearts, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear this truth. May we be challenged, may we be convicted, and ultimately comforted by your word. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Let's it with me. Luke chapter 4, verses 31 through 37. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. Amen. This is God's holy word. What well, we see, in Jesus began his ministry in Galilee, then goes back home to Nazareth, is rejected there, and then returns to Capernaum, where he had apparently already been, because he was, he was saying that, that the people who were chastising him in Nazareth were going to say, you know, do what you did in Capernaum, do that here as well. Um, and so now it seems like he's going back to a region that has already received him and, and, and been encouraged By his teaching, this, however, is the first of five accounts where Jesus heals someone on the Sabbath, and so this is a a a significant fact because it's a day of rest and worship that Jesus will uphold, and yet over and over he's challenging the practice, this kind of legalistic practice of the Pharisees and the scribes who reject. His healing ministry or at least doing that on the Sabbath, and so as he for Jesus though, the Sabbath was a day of great acts of mercy and compassion, and it 's radically different from the religious norm of the day now, when we picture authority today, we actually looked at that this this morning as well from titus um, this This idea that there's a modern disdain for authority, kind of a a chastisement of of leadership or of any kind of hierarchy in place. And it's often attached to abuses, right? There's stories of people in leadership who abuse their power, and those are highlighted all the time in the news, right? They want to make fun of those who are disgraced. They want to, to encourage the disgrace of authority figures in culture so that there can be less of a hierarchy, more of an even playing field, and yet we see that we really need to recover a picture of Christ-like authority, a kind of authority that is filled with compassion, that uses power in a way that builds others up and points them ultimately to... Christ. So Jesus taught with authority. That's the first thing we see here in verses 31 and 32. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. Once again, he goes into the synagogues, it would seem, and he's teaching on the Sabbath. Having been rejected in Nazareth, he doesn't change his plan. He doesn't say, well, okay, I guess that, that approach isn't working anymore, so let's try something different. Let's be creative. Let's see what, what the culture wants to hear. Let's maybe do a survey or, or consider uh, what, what successful businesses are telling us about reaching the lost today. Oh, he continues to preach the word. And so once again, Jesus is on this roller coaster where he's experienced acceptance following rejection here in Capernaum. They are amazed. Specifically amazed by his authoritative teaching. The fact that he teaches in a unique way. Teaches as one with authority. Um, There were teachers. They had rabbis. They had people who taught them all the time in the synagogues. But something was different about the way Jesus taught. He didn't rely upon tradition. He didn't quote others, he quoted scripture, and then he gave his interpretation of it. He spoke on his own authority to the people rather than relying upon tradition. uh, Kent Hughes gives this story of Harry Ironside. He said, once Harry Ironside was greeted by a visitor who said he had enjoyed the service, although he did not think Ironside was a great preacher. Ironside replied, I know I'm not a great preacher, but what was it about my preaching that brought you to that conclusion? The man answered, I understood everything you said. (laughs) So he spoke so plainly in his understanding of God's word that the man could follow it. And that was what was challenging because as you sit under the preaching of God's word, it is convicting. It is challenging. And right, so Jesus continues to speak with this plain authority, bringing people under awe and amazement. And that same spirit that empowered him fills believers today as we read his word. That same sense of awe, that same sense of amazement can happen to us as well. The Holy Spirit actively communicates the benefits. Have you experienced that? Have you gone through periods and times of, of where you just feel like meditating upon a particular passage or a particular verse even, memorizing it, and, and not just speaking it out of, out of routine, or, but actually thinking about what you're saying, thinking about what it is that you're, you're reading, and just being overwhelmed by that? You know, I think it's easy to, to just get sort of caught up in a in a routine of of checking off the, the task of reading God's Word, or even falling into a pattern of not reading it, right? Only opening it when we come to church. But if the Holy Spirit is actively communicating the benefits of our salvation through his word, then all the more we should be meditating upon it throughout the day. Not only opening it and reading it, but using it in our conversation. Using it in our prayers. Allowing the word to kind of guide our prayers to him. The things that we say. So how you respond to Jesus' authority really is reflected in how we respond to his word. How we receive it. The level of respect we, we have for his word. Do we submit to it? If we're not submitting to it, then we're in danger of being rebuked by that same Lord. And that's what happens here. We see the power of Jesus in his rebuke in verses 33 through 35, specifically with an unclean demon. There's this demon-possessed man within the synagogue. Notice that. He's... The demon's not missing a chance to gather with the saints, not missing an opportunity to stir up strife in the community of the saints. So this demon-possessed man seems to know who Jesus is. Verse 33, in the, in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, ha, and we don't actually know how to interpret that. Oh, ha. Uh, we don't, there's, there's. it's just an exclamation. He, he just shouts out. Then it's followed by this, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And oftentimes we read this with a negative connotation, right? We, we hear that it's a demon-possessed man, and so we put on that voice, that sound of, um, you know, the Exorcist or something, and then we, we start to hear it in that, that demonic sound that we associate with it, but in fact, it would seem unlikely that it was such so scary to hear. Um, but it was at this point controlling this man and speaking through him and saying, "What have you to do with us?" It, in fact, um, Calvin argues that the demonic the, the demon sought to stir up doubt about Jesus in the way that he's communicating him because he says, I know who you are. Right? You're the Holy One of God. And he speaks of his power and his authority to cast them out or to destroy them. So he's sort of acknowledging who he is and the power that he has and the fear that it strikes within the demon. And so Calvin thinks that he's trying to stir up doubt in the hearer's of the congregation right who who hear this man speaking and say well if he's associated with that demoniac then he's not for us he's against us and and that they would turn and in fact you do see something of that argument given in Matthew chapter 12 in in uh, Matthew 12 verse 24 you have another unclean spirit actually go we go back to Um, Matthew 12, sorry, 22, that a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw and all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it's only by Beelzebub the prince of demons that this man casts out demons. So, it would seem that Calvin's onto something here, the idea that that he's he's trying to associate himself with Jesus so that the people would then distrust the one that they were amazed by, right? that they would associate him with demons and and then he would become this prince of demons Beelzebub. All right, but, of course, Jesus doesn't listen to his fawning and this empty commendation of him. And, in fact, the demon throws the man down. In Mark, the parallel passage in Mark chapter 1, verse 26, talks about him convulsing the man. And it would seem that the, the demon, as he's exiting, the man is trying to cause harm. And so Luke indicates very clearly that he was unsuccessful in hurting him, that he was okay. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And so this demon possession, it's a question that we come across, really, when we read the Gospels. And it seems to be that almost all demon possession is entirely con- concentrated in these four books, there's a few references in Acts as well, but beyond that, you don't have examples of demon possession. And so it would seem that Satan was bringing the full force of his power against the redemptive plan of God, right? Using ev- throwing everything he had at this one last opportunity that he had to interrupt, to interfere the plan of Jesus. But of course, what what do we see over and over again? We see Jesus' authority, that he has power over spiritual darkness. He defeats evil every time. And so, you know, when I was younger and I was reading God's word really for the first time and and come across passage like this, I, I was fearful. Like, well, is that possible? Is it possible for me to be filled with a demon, you know, for, for something like that to happen? I mean, it happened even in a synagogue here, someone who was coming to, to worship. So what, what's the chances of that happening to me? And, and there was a, a real sense of fear about Satan and demons and spiritual activity. And I honestly don't think that the, the modern, like, description of demonic possession is, is very helpful the kind of illustrations we see in Hollywood of this, right? It's horrifying. <laughs> um, heads spinning all the way around and um, convulsing, and and even those who are gone to exorcise demons are attacked and hurt, and in some cases thrown out of windows and and murdered, right? And, and it just gives you this sense of 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 fear, and yet that's not. That's not what Scripture portrays it as. It's always one of Christ is victorious. We should not be filled with fear when we see passages like this. We should be filled with a sense of gratitude that we have a Savior who eliminates, who defeats all his and our enemies. So we should rejoice. We should be thankful. And that's ultimately what this leads to, right? The people are amazed at the power of his word. The crowds recognized Jesus was different. He spoke with authority and power. He didn't just have this this ability to to quote Scripture and interpret it himself with authority, but when he spoke, things happened. Demons come out of people. He's, He's powerful. He spoke on his own authority, and what he called for was always responded to. And There's almost an example here of an irresistible grace. Right? If Jesus calls you to himself, you'll respond in the same way that a demon must flee at his call for him to come out of a man. So Jesus speaks with authority. He continues to do so today. And there are and always will be imposters in the world. Right? Claiming to have divine authority and gifting to cast out demons, of course, they always take a longer time than this episode took. They always have a much more elaborate uh, ceremony involved. Um, I mean, I, I know pastors in this town who talk about going and visiting people to cast out demons, and it's, it's, a, it's a big deal. Right? They, they bring many people with them. And yet... And yet when we read it in the scripture, it seems to just be something that Jesus kind of takes care of in a few moments. Is is that same power at work today? Absolutely. And others who are imposters claim to have this gift of healing, and yet it's quite infrequently used. When someone sick comes to Jesus and he heals them, they're always healed. 100% 100% of the time he tries to heal someone, they're healed. That would be shocking because today when you hear about someone who has the gift of healing, the average percentage of success is about 2%. That's been admitted by someone who was, uh, who was in favor, uh, you know, basically uh, someone who supports this healing and the gift of healing. Daryl Bach quotes him. He says, one proponent, for example, has acknowledged that the rate of success in contemporary requests for healing is about 2%. So someone has an issue, they go to a faith healer, they acknowledge their struggle, and, and, and then about 2% of them claim to be healed. Whether Now, so what I want to say, first of all, is can God heal today? Absolutely. Can people be miraculously, uh, can they make a miraculous recovery from some sickness? Absolutely. And we should pray for that. We should pray for healing. Can someone have a gift of healing in the way that we see described by the apostles and by Jesus Christ here? Well, if they do, they're, it, they're radically inefficient in using their gift, right? Because instead of throwing big crusades where they collect a bunch of money and then have 2% success, they should go over to the hospital and start using their gift there. And that might sound harsh, but they're manipulating people's minds and emotions. And they're really minimizing the work of Christ, the authority and power of Christ to truly heal. So here's the thing. You're not called to do what Jesus did in this case. You're just not. In fact, you can't. can't you can't just tell a demon what to do. Uh, You can agree with the crowd that Jesus spoke with authority and power. You can trust in him to do the work of healing. And there is a real sense of spiritual warfare that's taking place, so don't hear me minimizing that. I do think Satan continues to, to, through his demons, Um, drive division to the body of Christ, to deceive, to manipulate. Unfortunately, oftentimes, it's successful, right? The question for us is, do we submit to Jesus' authority, right? Do we trust in him? Do we rely upon him? Because Christ brings freedom to those who are in bondage to sin. So do we submit to him? And do do we experience that everlasting peace that comes from doing so? So just a summary here. Jesus taught with authority. He rebuked with power. And the people ultimately were amazed. So the way we respond to his authority obviously must be more than, it must be more knowledgeable than the crowd responded. It also must be more sincere than the demons. Demons seem to know an awful lot, but they don't trust him. And it's because of Jesus Christ, it's because of the fact that he has authority and power over every physical and spiritual realm, we can trust him to fulfill his promises to save us. That's why we can trust his word. That's why we can open it and believe it and meditate upon it. So rather than living in fear of our own spiritual enemies, let us place our hope and trust in the one who defeated them fully and finally in his life and death. And then, let our knowledge of Christ and our submission to him bear out the fruit of compassion that he showed to those who were in desperate need of healing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reminder of Christ's love for his church, the way he cares for